Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Healing the Nations podcast, your podcast on religious liberty, end-time events, and current events. And I have a returning special guest, my friend, Jim Dickinson. Jim, thank you so much for returning as a guest for our podcast series. It's good to be here. I guess we're not together, um, but we're we're talking to each other via the uh, the wonders of technology. So yes, indeed, via digital. Jim, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to lately? Sure, um, I'm an attorney. I practice law in, in various counties in Northern California. I have office locations in Sacramento, Placer, and Butte counties. Um, I have uh, married, been married for almost 13 years now to a wonderful woman, and we have a daughter uh, who's six, so she'll be going into uh, first grade, just finished kindergarten, and we're doing homeschooling with her, so that's a lot of fun. And um, some of my background, I, I graduated from La Sierra University in 2005 with my bachelor's uh, in history. I then did some uh volunteer work, ministry work. I went to Amazing Facts College of Evangelism or Center of Evangelism, I believe they call it now, AFCO. And I did some work uh, in other ministries as well for a period of about uh, two and a half, three years. Um, got married, decided to, uh, you know, take a more traditional route, I guess it, I guess you'd say. Uh, moved back to California. I had moved to uh, to the South, moved back to California with my wife and um, started working at Loma Linda. Um, worked in the emergency room there for over a year and applied and was accepted to law school, applied to a couple schools nearby. I was a commuter. Uh, University of Laverne and Western State was accepted to each. Uh, University of Laverne offered me a little more money and it was an easier commute. So I went there. I graduated from there in 2012, um, May of 2012. I took the bar exam in July, passed it the first time, uh, thankfully and have been practicing law since December of 2012. Um, I've worked for people. I've worked for myself. Currently, I am I am working uh, for myself in, a, in my own practice up in, again, Northern California. I do litigation um, of various, uh, various types. So my, my life is, <laughs> in essence, a, a, a series of, um, of uh, attempts to try to bring parties together to try to resolve issues um, and sometimes having to, to you know to go to court and fight over over things if you can't reach a resolution so that um, that's me I think in essence as this nation is grappling with issues of the Constitution of equality under the law and various uh, legal aspects that people are debating socially, how is this racial controversy tied to religious liberty? Well, um, Peter, as you know, and I think you've uh, done a lot of research and have written papers and may have even done um, coursework on the history of, of not only uh, racism in America, uh, but also the Adventist Church's response to um, two issues of race. And we know, um, based on our history as a church, as Adventists, um, that our church historically, um, it hasn't been a perfect record, but historically um, we have not taken the position that um, the fight for equality and for liberty of minorities is a detached item, that it's something that uh, isn't part and parcel of our faith, isn't part and parcel of the three angels 
messages that we have taken a, an active um, role um, in helping uh, historically um, the causes of minorities. And uh, I think we'll talk about some of that in today's podcast. Um, it may be good to start by simply stating what the Bible teaches on the concept of race. Um, I have a number of verses that I've <laughs> I have in my notes here in front of me. I don't know that I need to read them all. I think that persons um, with some knowledge of the, of the Bible uh, can look them up. But I maybe read a couple here. Genesis one. 26 and 27 reads, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And in the book of Acts, chapter 17, uh, verses 24 to 28, I don't need to read the whole section here. Let's just go to verse 26. And it says, And he hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on the face of the earth. Um, so it's clear from Scripture, there are many other passages we could look at, that um, humanity comes from God, that we were created in the image of God, that regardless of our skin color, um, that we all come from God. The Bible teaches that we come from, ultimately from God, but we have a common ancestor in Adam and Eve, his wife. We also have common ancestors in Noah and his wife. And so it's clear from the Bible that um, we are created in the image of God and that we have common ancestors um, regardless of how um, we may appear on the outside. There's a well-known verse in the book of First Samuel. 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, verse 7, and it says, in part, For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And so, as we'll talk about, there has been, unfortunately, throughout history, a desire to make distinctions between people and subjugate certain peoples because of how they appear outwardly. But the Bible teaches that we have, that our father is God, that we have a common ancestor in Adam and Noah, and that God is looking at hearts. He's not looking at outward appearances. And if I may quote from Ellen White, there's some really interesting um, passages from her, statements from her, um, one of them being from Manuscript 6 um, from 1891, it reads, God cares no less for the souls of the African race that might be one to serve him than he cared for Israel. So Israel, the Bible teaches, is the apple of God's eye. And it says that God cares no less for the souls of the African race than he did for Israel. Again, in Avenus Review, December 17, 1895, she writes, Ellen White, she writes, The neglect of the colored race by the American nation is charged against them. So there has been a desire from uh, the beginning, and we could even go back uh, further and talk about Ellen White's position and the church's position regarding slavery um, and the opposition to slavery and the opposition to the Fugitive Slave Law or Act. Um, and so it's clear that the Bible teaches that we are all equal, that we all are deserving of the same rights and liberty. And if it need be said, though I don't know that it need be said, 
John 3.16 and Revelation 22.17 indicate, among other places, um, that the, um, the gospel message is for everyone. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so the, um, the message of the Bible and of the church is that we are all equal, equal by creation, made in the image of God, and we're equal before God and have equal opportunity to uh, access his grace by receiving his son, Jesus Christ. How do you respond to some members of our church that are saying that racism is a political issue, that some even believe it's a left-wing media construct that does not exist? Uh, how do you respond to those statements from members of our church membership? I disagree with the idea that racial tension is just something that's hyped up by the media. Um, I think the history is quite clear that there is racial tension. If we look at it now, there is racial tension and that there has been. I don't take exception to the idea based on my reading of Scripture, and I think the correct reading of Scripture, that in, in a sense, rather, um, race is a construct. If we all have a common ancestor, so we all uh, can trace our lineage back to Noah and before that to Adam, we could say, and then before that, of course, to God, um, that there really is one race, right? So it's the race is called human. It's a human race. So at some point along the journey, there was, for whatever reason, uh, which we won't get into today, because um, I don't know that I understand it. I don't know that it's it's understood that the concept of race uh, came up, that, that this construct of classifying people based on either the color of their skin or their uh, place in which they live, whatever it be, uh, common culture, that that construct developed and that it has been used, unfortunately, to make differences um, between people. Um, we know certainly post-Charles Darwin and the uh, application of his theories of natural selection and survival of the fittest to social, um, to societies and to, um, as a basis uh, to, to make distinctions between persons for purposes of imperialistic pursuits, etc., that we see this construct being used to make tiers of races, white persons, um, Anglo persons being on the top and, you know, down from there. That, that's in history, unfortunately. But even before Charles Darwin, we can see that race was used as a way to, to make distinctions between people and to subjugate certain types of persons. Um, unfortunately, the history of our nation is such that um, if you go back to even before um, Anglo settlers, you had uh, slaves um, uh, even predating that. And so the, the history is, um, is quite uh, sad, and it has been one based in, in the construct of race. Uh, to, to the question, though, I think that you're raising is that, yes, there are a lot of many persons who do not want to have the difficult discussions about race and to do what's necessary to try to resolve attentions uh, by saying everything is just media hype or it's, you know, some sort of left-wing conspiracy or or what have you. Um, I think those persons, um, you know, they don't get a pass, uh, especially if they're saying that they follow Jesus, who, 
throughout his ministry um, uh, did many provocative things to get us to realize that uh, we all share a common ancestor, that we're all brothers and sisters, regardless of how we may appear on the outside. How should the church respond to the issue of racism right now as this nation is grappling with it? Well, I think we first need to acknowledge that it still exists, that because we had, you know, a series of uh, federal acts in the mid-60s, acts regarding accommodation and voting, et cetera, that basically worked to fix the damage that was done by Jim Crow for a period of almost 100 years after the end of the Reconstruction era, um, that because you have legislation does not mean that the hearts and minds of persons across the nation have changed. And though I don't want to attribute the rise of Donald Trump as being solely the product of a nativist or a racist um, sentiment or appeal, I, I think that there certainly still is racism in the nation. Some areas are more affected by it than others. But ultimately, I think to even look at it from a, the standpoint of this region is more affected by it than other regions, I think is wrong because we look at this individually. We We have perceptions of race that are that are unique to each of us. And so, well, first of all, as, as a matter of policy and of law, we need to stand up for persons that are being oppressed um, and take steps to do um, some common sense reform to try to change the dynamic. In the policing context, I have some ideas that we can talk about here shortly. Um, but as it relates to um, to individual efforts to reach persons, I think that's right. I think we, we should be sharing the gospel with individuals such that their attitudes, uh, their hearts and minds um, are changed by their connection with Christ. And so I think it's both. I think you need to be um, cognizant of the policy issues and not, not run away from those uh, insofar as they have the effect of um, of damaging or injuring minorities, but I think also you need to have a gospel message um, where you're seeking to evangelize and reach persons so that our society is not changed by way of putting a Band-Aid over something or to force people to do things they don't otherwise want to do, but that they actually are, are transformed so that they can love persons that are not like them. Now, you mentioned just now that this may be an evangelistic opportunity. Can you elaborate more on that? I don't have it in front of me. I can pull it up. There is a passage in the book of Galatians, if you'll permit me. Galatians chapter 3, I think it's verse 28. And it says, we can go back actually to verse 26 and read to the end of the chapter, verse 29. Um, it says, For ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So I think right there is the principle, right? So if, if persons are putting on Christ, they're being baptized into Christ, they're becoming Christians. Um, you know, obviously, if we're Adventists, we're going out uh, to, to share our message. Uh, they're becoming Adventists, right? that the distinction between uh, Jew and Gentile goes away. The distinction between bond and free goes away. And I think obviously the bond and the free 
uh, has some implications, even going back to Paul's time between um, between the races. And certainly the idea that you're you're grafted into, you know, into the, the, the stock of Israel, you're, you're Abraham's seed by believing in Christ. Right? There, there's a racial component to that as well. And so by sharing the gospel, by having persons, if they choose, I mean, we're not forcing anyone, but if they respond and say, hey, look, uh, this is what we want to do. This is who we want to be a part of. It's um, what we want to be a part of that. I think this is something that resolves itself. Um, but we can't say, this is a point that I want to make clear, that we can't just simply state, well, let's, in my opinion, let's just try to reach people's uh, hearts. I think that's right. But we, we can't just say we're going to do that while while persons are being uh, stepped on, while their their necks are being kneeled on and they're they're basically suffocating to death um, because of, of uh, policing that's disproportionately affecting minorities, whether it's arrest records, whether it's uh, prosecution rates, whether it's um, whether it's uh, conviction rates or sentencing terms uh, across the board, uh, minorities are being disproportionately affected in a negative sense by the legal or, or uh, criminal justice system. And so for us to just ignore that and say, let's just share the gospel, like, I think that's incomplete. So I think we need to do both. That would be my response. And say, um, yes, ultimately the thing that's going to change hearts and minds is to lead people to Jesus. But for people to think and to know that you actually care about them, you also have to do things that actually matter in a temporal sense, right? Like we talk about the health message a lot. We're going to go and we're going to, you know, help you with your with your physical ailments. But I think there's also like a piece of perspective as Adventists that we need to take it upon ourselves, and it's actually been delegated to us by God to to work to affect policy that uh, makes it such that persons that are on the outside are not being stepped on, they're not being oppressed. So it's not an either or, it's uh, these are things that need to be done together. How do we balance being involved in social issues and preaching the three angels' messages? Because our mandate is every nation, kindred, tongue, and people is there any template that our Adventist pioneers have established that shows us what we can do at this time? Well, so I think what would be good at this point is to look at some examples from history. So if we can kind of pick up where we left off with the idea that race is a construct, and there's really just one race, that we have common ancestors in Adam and Noah. But that race has been created, it has been used to make differences among people. And if I can read it, I don't like reading this passage. It's kind of um, it's difficult to read, but I think it captures um, some of the thinking in essence. This is from Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy. He states, our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite ideas, and he's referring to the, the American Constitution. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and moral condition. And so we see this that didn't just arise, you know, in 1861, when 1860, I think is when, well, 1860, 1861, right? So um, this is when the Confederacy is beginning to rise up and, and state, you know, its position. 
this comes from, you know, hundreds of years of history predating it. That's based on the same type of thinking that the white man is superior to, to the African race, right? And that the African race is basically there to serve the needs of the white man for the benefit of the white man, for the benefit of society, for the benefit of progress. You see all these ideas and the writings of John C. Calhoun and others, um, but also for the benefit of the of the black man, right? And so, and by the way, to the extent that I use it, the terms that are in these historic documents, those these are not my terms. I don't refer to persons, for example, as Negroes. I just, I'm reading something here. So if I use that language, it's in this context, just so that's clear. <laughs> so you have this attitude, you have this this idea that's basically captured and it's uh, it's distilled into this, this effort by the Confederacy. But it's, it's an idea that existed long before, and unfortunately it's an idea that continued forward. And I had mentioned earlier briefly about um, persons taking Charles Darwin's theories of natural selection and survival of the fittest and using them in the context of, of politics and economics and so forth. And so we can see the same type of thinking that was um, put forth by Alexander Stevens uh, during the Civil War, um, uh, using that same type of logic later on. So if we go to imperialistic efforts of the United States in the late 1800s and Jim Crow really starting at the end of the Reconstruction era in 1877, uh, clear up until, you know, the 1950s or 60s, Rosa Parks in 55, and then ultimately the Accommodation Acts and the Voting Rights Acts of 1964 and 1965, I believe. Um, that whole period of time there of almost 100 years or really 100 years, you still see the same sort of um, belief or ideology having sway. And so um, I think we could look at the imperialistic efforts of the United States briefly. It's kind of a way to unpack this. And so I thought a way to, to kind of jump off into that was to mention a, uh, a poem written by uh, Rudyard Kipling, um, The White Man's Burden. I, I don't want to read it. I think it's it's a little difficult to read, um, and it's something that the listener could look up with a Google search and, and have a look. But in essence, the, the poem is about the Philippine-American War, um, which exhorts the United States to assume colonial control of the Filipino people and their country. And um, a takeaway from the poem, uh, many have said, is that the implication is that the empire existed not for the benefit of Britain or the United States, but in order that primitive people incapable of self-government could, with Western guidance, eventually become civilized and Christianized. And so the idea was, is that we, the white man's burden, is to go throughout the world, and we still hear this today, unfortunately, you know, we go throughout the world and we help liberate people, we help set up governments for them so that they can be self-determinative, we help them um, become civilized. Right? That's our burden. It's our burden to bear. Well, obviously, there's some benefit to us doing that. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing that. Um, and so this this same thinking that, that comes out of what I just read from the, the Confederacy that obviously predates it is continued forward into the late 1800s in American imperialism. Um, an interesting response by Mark Twain in 1900 to this sentiment, I'm going to read this here now. Um, I think it parallels, you'll, you'll, you'll hear some clear parallels between what he writes uh, 120 years ago and some of the justifications or the response to our invading um, 
Middle Eastern countries post 9-11. So have a listen to this. This is Mark Twain. We have no more business in any other country that is not our own. There is the case of the Philippines. I have tried hard, and yet I cannot for the life of me comprehend how we got into that mess. Perhaps we could have not avoided it. Perhaps it was inevitable that we should come to be fighting the natives of those islands. But I cannot understand it and have never been able to get to the bottom of the origin of our resentment toward the natives. I thought we should act as their protector, not to get them under our control. We were to relieve them from Spanish rule to enable them to set up a government of their own. And we were to stand by and see that it got a fair trial. It was not to be a government according to our ideas, but a government that represented the feelings of the majority of Filipinos, a government according to the Filipino ideas. And so um, it's unfortunately clear that there are parallels between the idea that we're going in to the Philippines <laughs> to liberate, right? Just like we did in Iraq. We're going in to liberate. We're going in to um, set them free. We're going to help them set up a government. Aren't we great? You know, never mind the fact that, you know, there was strategic advantage to having the Filipino islands as part of our empire. Never mind the fact that there's strategic advantage to having um, the advantages we now uh, realize as a result of having gone into Iraq and Afghanistan and to some degree even. Um, uh, it's, it's less clear what's going on in Syria. but So the point is, is that this sentiment is still present. Back to your question. So what's the point of this? What was the Adventist response during this time? Well, I wasn't sure on this, and so I looked it up, and apparently there's a gentleman that's doing some research on this, and I believe his name is Jeffrey Rosario. Maybe, Peter, you know something about this. If not, I can share what I found. Well, yes, Jeffrey Rosario is a friend of mine, actually. He's doing some great work. I think he's uh, pursuing his master's in Cambridge, I believe, in the UK. If you could share what you've learned, that'd be great. Yeah, this is what I found. And again, I'm, I'm reading some of what I found on this point, so bear with me. Um, and I understand Jeffrey Rosario is at Cambridge. He may be working as staff there. And as part of his dissertation, um, he found some information indicating that there was an Adventist, a fairly strong Adventist critique about American imperialism around the turn of the 20th century, and that it was far more extensive than previously realized. A broad sector of Adventist leaders spoke out against the militaristic uh, jingoism, I think is the word, connected with the Spanish-American War, and even more pointedly against the ensuing annexation of the Philippines and brutal war to crush the Filipino independence movement. And he goes on to talk about uh, the Adventist position regarding the Boxer Rebellion and some other things. It's very interesting. I mean, there's almost nothing that I could find on this except for this little blurb that I think was in a, oh, I forget the, the article that it was in, but it looks like persons are doing research and uh, the Adventist voice uh, was not limited solely to issues of slavery um, and uh, which which Adventists know very well, the Fugitive Slave Act and the abolitionist position and so forth, but also that it continued, it continued in to the late 1800s and the Adventists were a voice against American imperialism. And so um, why this matters is, I, I, I suppose why it matters is if you look at the the second beast of Revelation 13, I think quite a few Adventists have said, including myself, have said at some point in the future, 
you know, the United States is going to have, you know, Christ-like characteristics or attributes while speaking as a dragon, right? Um, That that may not be a correct understanding, that the empire of America has had those characteristics and it reaches the final culmination and a push uh, for the uh, the image to the beast and the mark of the beast, which we understand um, uh, to be something specific within Adventism. So um, it's good to know that this research is being done and that there was a voice within Adventism to speak out against American imperialism in the late 1800s. Additionally, and this is something that I think you're an expert in, is the um, the Adventist response to Jim Crow laws. Um, so Jim Crow laws were state and local laws that enforced racial segregation in the southern states, and they were enacted and, and put into place um, at the end of the Reconstruction period, as I mentioned, and they were enforced until uh, as late as 1965. Um, you had the United States Supreme Court case in 1896 of Plessy versus Ferguson, in which the U.S. Supreme Court laid out its separate but equal legal doctrine for facilities for African Americans. So. Um, there's there's more history there that we could unpack, but I think it would be good to just mention what the Adventist response was to um, to the plight of the blacks who were being disenfranchised, who were losing their political and economic rights and the gains that they had made um, following the Civil War during the Reconstruction period, which would have lasted from uh, 1865 to 1877. And I believe... Uh, Peter's kind of an expert on this, so I'm going to let him talk to the Adventist response to to Jim Crow and to um, assisting the blacks in the southern states. And I think really, Peter, in doing this, you're going to be answering your own question as to how Adventists should conduct themselves today with regard to both using evangelism to reach the hearts and minds, but also taking steps to to deal with some of the issues that were created by policy and bad politics. So, Just to add then. During the 1890s, Ellen White's son, Edson White, had a conviction to do ministry for African Americans in the post-Reconstruction era. The federal troops have been pulled out now. Uh, The South has now regained their autonomy or their sovereignty as states. And so Edson White, with very limited funding, took a small team on a steamboat called the Morning Star and would sail the Mississippi River, going from place to place in the South, establishing churches, Ministry of African Americans setting up schools, and there are accounts that they were shot at by the KKK and Jim Crow. They literally risked their lives to reach African Americans. And during this time, Ellen White wrote extensively to her son and also to the church of the emphasis of the equality of African Americans and to humanize African Americans as people, as equal human beings, and emphasizing their humanity that they're made in the image of God. And so I found it very reassuring that our church, on their own, not being aligned with any movement per se, but on their own, did a work to help relieve the suffering of the oppressed. And piggybacking on the imperialism era, if you want to know some more sources, Percy McGann, one of the uh, leading Adventist educators, wrote a book on the issue of imperialism, the dangers of imperialism, how it is the lamb-like beast that speaks as a dragon. And also A.T. Jones wrote about imperialism in the island of Hawaii. Hawaii was a sovereign nation, but it was overthrown by the interests of sugarcane planters from the United States. 
And A.T. Jones also wrote extensively how that was an evil, that was the lamblight beast speaking as a dragon. So those are some of the examples from our early church founders and Adventist leaders in the 1800s that have stood up for the oppressed. Yeah, that's really good. And so we see that the Seventh-day Adventist Church historically has stood up for the oppressed. Should we be involved in align with political movements in this regard, or should we be separate or distinct in your opinion? Um, well, I'll answer for me personally. I, I don't think that I want to be involved in either party's uh, agenda or um, supporting groups of either party. Um, that said, I, I can't just sit by and be silent, right, in the face of injustice, right? I can't just ignore that and say, well, I don't want to get involved in politics. I don't really agree with my, what my party's position is, and I, um, though I agree with the other party or whatever it is, I don't know that I want to go, go there. Um, and so um, I think we have to find ways to say enough. We have to say, look, this is not okay. This is shocking to us. It's a problem, and we want to, in real ways, now, even in doing this podcast, we're trying, right, Peter? We're trying. Amen, um, we are. We're, we're, we're definitely trying to be a voice. We're yes. trying. Yeah, in our own little, like, maybe somewhat, you know, limited way, right? To say, this is not okay. I don't, I don't think that either of us, I know you pretty well, I don't think that either of us are going to go out tomorrow and sign up to be a Republican or a Democrat. I think that's just where we are. I think both of us probably have a position that the nonpartisan route is the correct route at this time. Maybe the correct route always. I don't know. But we have to do something. We have to say something. We have to speak out. And so one of the ways that I've tried to is by posting things on Facebook. I, if you don't mind, maybe I can read something that I wrote. Oh, please feel um, free. Within, within the context of the George Floyd um, killing, in my opinion, a murder. This is what I wrote. And this is in response, uh, just so the context is clear, um, this is in response to listening to a sermon in which the person, and I'm not faulting and I won't name names, but um, taking the position that we just need to focus on evangelism, just reaching people. That's all God wants or expects of us, right? And that's what we should be doing. And I'm not against that. But I, here's what I wrote in response. Um, quoting. To say, as many do, that Adventists should focus on reaching people individually and not get caught up in politics is fine. However, there are times when conscience trumps creed and commitment or commitments to creed and demands that we speak out against injustice. To quote spiritual passages while quieting conscience and doing nothing is not Christian obedience. It is obedience to self. It is, in the present context, obedience to Caesar. Who moved Ellen White to publicly and repeatedly object to the institution of slavery and specifically the Fugitive Slave Act? Who moved the leaders of this nation to finally oppose and forever end slavery at a time when such position was widely unpopular, even in the northern states? Who moved upon the civil rights leaders to demand and attain for blacks after three and a half centuries on this continent equality under law? The answer to all of the above is obvious. It was God. Maybe you're like me, uncomfortable with the yelling and the craziness of a protest, and don't go on that basis. But we can and should say in our own way, enough. 
conscience demands that we say enough. Quoting spiritual passages may be our way, that's fine, just as long as you're not doing so to quiet conscience or to invite others to do the same. And that's the quote. And so I think coming back to the, the bigger question, I don't think that we can just have the idea that liberty is to be compartmentalized, to say, oh, let's let's not be perceived as being political. Let's wait until our issue, a Sunday law, for example, is in play. But rather, let's fight for liberty for the least of these. And the fight over Sunday is just going to be a part of a larger battle against the various structures of Babylon, which oppress and destroy the bodies and souls of men. If you look at the list in Revelation, what is it, Revelation 19, Peter, you'd know better than I didn't have it, speaking extemporaneously right now. Um, You look at the, the list of all of the sins of Babylon, right? And ends with the souls of men, right? All of those things that they're involved in. I don't think that it's enough for us to just say, look, we're going to talk about one of the sins of Babylon, because the second angel's message says, uh, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, right? Revelation 18, 4, uh, it says that we're to call people out of Babylon, right? So to do that, you have to identify what's going on. You have to get involved. And Babylon is a political, religious entity, right? Um, system. So if we're going to be involved with the political religious system, we don't have to do the same thing. We don't have to create our own church state. That's not what I'm saying. But we need to engage in the ways or, or address the issues that are being raised by Babylon. I'm not saying we join a party. I'm not. I'm not even saying that the church. It, it's complicated for the church to take positions on, on political issues. Um, But where the church is not able to, or where it's complicated for the church to do so, each of us individually, regardless of our commitment to the church, have a higher calling, if I dare say, if that sounds irreligious to some, so be it. We have a higher calling to our conscience to say, if you see somebody with dying on the ground, with some guy's neck pushed on the back of of their neck, for eight minutes and 46 seconds, and you're not willing to say enough about that, you're not willing to speak out about that, then I don't know what to say to you. I don't know what the answer is in that situation for you. To say, I'm going to go to church on Sabbath and pay my tithe, but I'm not going to say anything about that because it's too political. To me, I think that's a problem. And so I believe that that conscience demands that we say enough in our own ways. The church has a conscience in a sense, but that's a construct. What we can say with certainty is that each of us as individuals have a conscience and that we must listen to that and not stifle it. And I feel sometimes we use religion and the Bible to stifle our conscience and what conscience demands of us. And so thankfully we have a history, we have a heritage within Adventism where there needn't be a conflict between what our conscience demands and what our church historically has been involved with and done. And I think in part that's the purpose of this discussion, is to raise the fact that if we look back into history, we can see that the Adventist church has been a force when, for example, 
the other Protestant churches, at least the other white Protestant churches, Adventism wasn't necessarily a white Protestant church at the time, but the, many of the other Protestant churches in the South post-Reconstruction were working against the liberty and the freedom of the black man. The Adventist church was working in the opposite direction. And I think that's a distinction between those that are following the God of the Bible and those who are just claiming to follow the God of the Bible. And I think at this time, when Protestantism is going the way of so-called law and order, which is just a perpetuation of a system that is problematic, to say the least, that for us to be true Protestants, we need to go against the tide. We need to go against the grain. We need to swim upstream. And I hope that we do it. And I don't think we do it by just quoting Bible verses and saying, let's just share the gospel by and by with people. I think we need to do that. And I think that's the solution ultimately to the, the heart changing hearts and minds. But I think we also need to speak. Do you think the intolerance exhibited by various nations and even in the United States towards certain races can also yeah. be transferred over to intolerance towards a religious minority, maybe even the Seventh Adventist Church? Well, I'm reminded of an old quote, and I don't want to say it because <laughs> I don't want to say it. But I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. There is an old quote from I think the the book and I know it's I know it's certainly in the movie. I've seen the movie many times and when I think about it I, I'm thinking of the movie um To Kill a Mockingbird. Where the lawyer it was his name. Atticus Fitch, I believe. Atticus Finch Finch? Uh, yeah, Atticus Finch, yeah. He represents a black man, an allegation that was clearly frivolous that he had sexually assaulted a white woman, I think, right? That is correct. And yeah. The relative, a relative of the white woman uh, menaced Atticus's children while they're waiting in a car or something like this. And as they're driving away, I won't use the word, okay? I won't use the word. But the man calls out, and N-word, we know what the N-word is. N-word lover, right? That's what you are. You're an N-word lover, Okay. The only sane person in that whole courtroom that was involved in the proceedings, not that we're watching from the gallery, was or were the defense attorney and his client. You could not expect rationality from the judge, from the, certainly not from the prosecutors or the alleged victim. You couldn't expect it from the jury, right? The only one that was dealing in real things was the defense attorney and his client. Right? And they were both seen as pariahs. They were both seen as outcasts. So, yeah. Yeah, when the Adventist church stands up for persons that are being stepped on, yeah we're going to be stepped on too. And the reason, dare I say, that we're not being stepped on now, at least not in America, is because we've got our priorities all mixed up. Because we have a faith that has told us it's just about 
personal conduct, and I'm, I'm not against right conduct and the food that we eat and the things that we wear. And I'm not against that either. And not about loving our neighbor. We've talked a lot about all sorts of other things, but we haven't talked a lot about the sermon or the, uh, the parable of the Samaritan, right? I would say the good Samaritan, but I think that has a certain racist connotation. You know what I'm referring to. Yes, I understand. Right? And so, um, who is my neighbor? That should be our question. And going about answering that, and in answering that in real ways, yes, we're going to face trouble. And I don't know that, and I don't want to become critical here, but I don't know that having institutions that, as a general proposition, serve people is enough. To say I gave it work is not enough that we have to be about this in a real way or we, we should just stop pretending. That's how I feel. Now we've established that there is injustice and oppression going on based on the flow of this conversation. And I did send you some testimonials of one being a dear friend of mine, another, a famous seventh Adventist uh, musician, both African American and how they were treated by law enforcement and you being an attorney, what are some recourses or counsel that can be given in situations where an African-American like my friend Craig King, he is well-spoken, he's well-dressed, he is a musician and a classical musician, a pianist, he is a music evangelist, he being pulled over in his own neighborhood on the way to the gym by a police officer in Hillsboro, Oregon. What kind of legal recourses can we have for situations where people are being unjustly profiled? Well, so I think what we have to be aware of are rights, if I can get that out. We need to know our rights. Okay, so I think the, um, and this is general information, right? And we're not talking about a specific case, um, and this is certainly not legal advice, okay? But we're all familiar with the Miranda warning, right? You have the right to be silent. Anything you say can be used against you in court. You have the right to an attorney to be present before and during questioning. If you can't afford an attorney, one will be appointed to represent you in court, right? So um, in essence, that's the Miranda warning. So from there, you have implicated um, various rights in the Bill of Rights, right? You also, in police contacts, need to be cognizant of what your rights are in the context of uh, protections against unreasonable searches and seizures. So you have the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments implicated, uh, maybe other things um, as well, the Fourteenth Amendment as it applies to the states. But um, I think the Miranda warning kind of gives you a pretty good sense of what your rights are as it relates to um, to statements that you could make, right? Um, but a Miranda warning need not be given. So they can pull you over. There can be some sort of police contact. They don't have to give you a Miranda warning. Um, they're not required to do it until you've been subjected to what's called custodial interrogation. So custody means that you've been put in a place where you're not free to leave. They've deprived your 
ability to freely move about in a significant way. Interrogation means that they're doing, asking some question or doing something that would reasonably elicit an incriminating response. So without that, right, there's no requirement that they give you a Miranda warning. So if you're relying on the cops giving you that admonition, it may not happen. Um, and sometimes they just don't. And your recourse, generally speaking, is to have any statement you made uh, in violation of Miranda after you've been subjected to custodial interrogation, you make a statement without a Miranda warning that that statement could simply be suppressed or excluded in court. But that doesn't, you know, prevent you from being arrested or other things that could happen. So it's good to know what's in the Miranda warning because, you know, it may not be given and hopefully it's never given because you don't want to be put in custody. Um, but that would be a place to start. And I think most people have a general sense of what's in the Miranda warning. Um, but uh, during police contacts, one has the right to be silent. And I think you, if your desire is to be silent, you should express it by saying something to the effect that I'm exercising my right to be silent and then and I'm not speaking to you. And then make sure that you don't speak to them. Because <laughs> you can make a, what's called a spontaneous statement where they're not doing anything that would reasonably elicit an incriminating response, and then whether or not a Miranda warning has been given, um, you've, you know, just made a statement, right? You also have a right to a lawyer, so you can indicate, I want to speak with a lawyer. So you could say something to the effect, I'm exercising my right to be silent, I don't want to speak to you, and I want to speak to a lawyer, and then make sure you don't speak. You have the right to refuse to consent to searches. So a search under current law means an intrusion into an area in which you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. So we could talk about uh, areas such as your body, your clothing, your car, your home. So uh, there are, as we'll discuss here shortly, um, there are a number of exceptions to the warrant requirement, but generally speaking, the Fourth Amendment would require a warrant be obtained prior to the government or government official conducting a search. And regardless of one's immigration or citizenship status, um, the individual has constitutional rights, as I've mentioned. Now, as far as practical tips, um, I don't know that this audience needs this um, information, but I'll share it nonetheless. Um, best as a life practice not to use drugs or alcohol. One's judgment can be impaired and you can do or say things that you would regret doing later. And some studies show that more than 50% of persons arrested had drugs and or alcohol in their system. And these are not just DUI arrests or arrests for being under the influence. These are arrests generally. Um, stay calm and polite. Don't interfere or obstruct with the police. Don't touch a police officer. And do your best to remember the details of the encounter. Um, and so um, I think that kind of gives an overview of, you know, there's there are resources that you can find as to how to conduct yourself with with the police or during a police contact. Um, the rules in various contexts are specific to the different jurisdictions. So you'd want to be aware. And I try to just give some general information that I think would apply um, irrespective of of uh, jurisdiction. Again, this is not advice, just information here. Um, but the, the main thing is is to, to know your rights, um, but to exercise them um, politely. You know, police contacts can be rather fluid, right? You're, you're 
parked on the side of the road, you're pulled over on the side of the road at night, you're by yourself, it's just you and the officer. Um, and a lot of it's judgment as to what you want to do. You have a right to, you know, various things and whether or not you want to exercise them is going to be an issue of judgment. Um, but I, I would say generally in my practice with my clients um, in cases here in my jurisdiction, I, I advise that they exercise their rights as frequently and as often as they can. Now, you said that there are some exceptions to our rights that law enforcement have at their disposal. Can you expound more on that? Yeah, so what I'd say is um, I'm looking at this, this situation with not just George Floyd, but others. And I ask the question and I say, how did we get here, right? <laughs> how did we get to this place? How did we get to the place where um, the police, there's not, I'll say it differently, there's not a healthy respect or healthy boundaries between the police and the citizen, right? How did we get to this place? So there are three reasons why I think that we are where we are, where police misconduct is so rampant. The first is the erosion of the Fourth Amendment, uh, the protections of the Fourth Amendment, uh, which again is protections against unreasonable searches and seizures, the evolution and the application of the doctrine of qualified immunity, and the um, the rise and expansion of uh, police unions. Um, these are all, in my opinion, um, reasons to explain how we got to where we are. And I think steps to try to reverse and go in the opposite direction or in a different direction is necessary so that healthy boundaries are um, maintained between law enforcement and citizens. Um, police have a job to do, but that job should not be one that includes uh, the type of misconduct that we're seeing on a regular basis across this nation in not just a few agencies, but throughout various agencies. And um, I think we'll begin by just looking at the erosion of the Fourth Amendment. So the Fourth Amendment reads, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So there's a lot there. Um, the main thing that I want to focus on is, you know, the, the warrant requirement. And believe it or not, the Fourth Amendment till about um, 1914, I want to say, um, there was no what's now known as the exclusionary rule. Um, so for 150 years, 140 years of the nation, um, the exclusionary rule didn't exist. Um, so the exclusionary rule says that items seized um, as, uh, as a result of an unreasonable search or seizure, they would be excluded. And things that ultimately the rule turned into what's known as the, the fruit of the poisonous tree, things that came from that that uh, violation of the Fourth Amendment would, would likewise be excluded or suppressed from evidence. Um, that rule was not applied to the state for a number of years. Um, I believe it wasn't until 1961, I want to say. And um, it wasn't until 1967 that, the, um, that you had this concept of a reasonable expectation of privacy, the so-called CATS test, CATS, K-A-T-S, or K-A-T-Z, rather. Um, and so um, 
prior to that, there had to be some showing of a trespass, a formal trespass into some sort of a property right. The Katz uh, case came along in 1967 and said that if you have areas in which you have a reasonable expectation of privacy, that is, you've you've manifested a subjective expectation that that the areas remain private and that that expectation is reasonable, right? That the government cannot, you know, um, intrude into those areas without a warrant. The problem is, is that at the at the same time that you're seeing this rise, presumably, or realization of the rights under the Fourth Amendment. You're also seeing, uh, or, or shortly thereafter, all of these exceptions to the warrant requirement arise, and exceptions to the exclusionary rule arise. So you have the exceptions to the warrant requirement that would include consent, plain view, exigent circumstances, the automobile exception, search incident to arrest, border search exception, on and on it goes. You have the, the winnowing down of the exclusionary rule, um, such that information that uh, evidence that would otherwise be excluded may not be, depending on certain circumstances. And so what used to be a real deterrent, right, or at some point was a real deterrent to um, to police misconduct, police um, violating the Fourth Amendment, such that the evidence would ultimately be excluded, has turned into, over time, a provision in the Constitution that um, provides very little protection or very limited or qualified protection. And so when you have cases, which which I have in my practice, right, where you have persons who you look at the case and you say, this is a Fourth Amendment issue, you know, you litigate it. And, you know, unfortunately, and I'm not the only one, but, you know, say you went across the state, California, you probably find that 90% or more of suppression motions would be denied, if not more than that. I mean, maybe more than 90%. There are all sorts of exceptions and qualifications and reasons why uh, bad police conduct, objectively speaking, is being permitted and the things that are obtained as a result of that bad conduct is being allowed to be presented in court against these individuals. So it's 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 a right that's not wholly illusory. Like There's still some application of the Fourth Amendment, but it's certainly been significantly curtailed. And so there's not a deterrent effect from police officers acting in ways that they may not otherwise act if the Fourth Amendment were, um, um, I think, uh, if you, just a plain reading of the Fourth Amendment, if there was a requirement that persons, the, uh, the government actors or officials obtain a warrant um, in most cases, if not all cases. Um, you also have the evolution of the doctrine of qualified immunity. I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this, but basically, if your constitutional rights, um, the, the term is right, privilege, or immunity, this is 42 U.S.C. 1983, have been violated, okay, by someone that's acting under color of law um, or acting under under law, uh, that you have the right to um, seek some sort of uh, relief for money damages um, against that party. Doctrine of qualified immunity has come along and said that Individual officers are not going to be held liable. Um, they're, the agencies themselves may be, but the officers are not, unless the plaintiff shows that the officer violated, violated what's called a clearly established statutory or constitutional right of which a reasonable person would have known that those rights were in place. And there are all sorts of problems with that. So the critique of this is that it's requiring that there be some sort of case law that's very similar to the scenario that's happened to this individual, to this plaintiff, 
before the officer would be put on uh, notice of the fact that their deviation from that that norm, that established norm, um, would subject them to personal liability. And so again, you're you're removing. Um, this was created by um, created by the courts. This concept of qualified immunity. You're removing another deterrent to police officers. So the Fourth Amendment doesn't provide a sufficient deterrent in many cases, in my opinion, and the removal of qualified immunity is the same. And some have said that even if you remove qualified immunity, that the, um, the agency would indemnify the police officers or hold them harmless or step in their shoes to pay off uh, any sort of liability. And so there's ways to get around it. But I think that, you know, working to uh, remove qualified immunity or take steps there, I think would be a good thing as well. Um, I have another Facebook post on this point, but I don't know that we have time to go through it. The last thing is um, uh, relates to police unions. And so if you are, um, if you're looking at the case of George Floyd, the officer who's seen kneeling on his neck, I understand had been previously placed on leave after using deadly force and it was the subject of approximately 18 different complaints. Okay. And he's still out there doing his thing, and that should not have happened, right, clearly. Uh, Minneapolis, the police department that he was working for, has a history of not disciplining officers. It's been reported that of 2,600 misconduct complaints filed in the last decade with the city, only 12 have resulted in discipline. So just so that's clear, that's less than one-half of 1% of complaints turning into some sort of discipline. In 2014, 26 Philadelphia police officers were fired for flagrant wrongdoing. Their, their offenses included theft, excessive force, and being drunk on the job. And 19 of them were subsequently ordered reinstated through the arbitration process. So, um, and then recently with the uh, protest, a 75-year-old man was pushed to the ground in Buffalo, New York. In response, the Buffalo police Benevolent Association, that is the police union there in Buffalo, responded with organized demonstrations to support the officers who shoved the elderly man to the ground. So um, I, I'll leave the issue of collective bargaining and all of the, the sweetheart deals that are that are done that make it such that there's very little accountability to the police for the, the listener to look up and research on their own. But I would just state that obviously it's in the public interest for us to reform the police unions. So I'd say a, a reset, expand Fourth Amendment protections, get rid of qualified immunity, and reform or do away with police unions. I think those are those are things that would change the dynamic such that police officers would actually be deterred from acting in ways that are as horrific as what we're seeing throughout the nation. Um, it, things that we just can't ignore. And um, Well, thank you so much for sharing both um, spiritual counsel and legal counsel. And I know we're going to have another podcast in the future on religious liberty. So I look forward to that. Yeah, me too. Thank you, Peter, for having me. No problem. The privilege is ours. And before we end, can you have a word of prayer for us? Yes, thank you. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we know you and that we have a faith that is relevant, that is filled with examples throughout history of persons who did not sit on the sidelines, that were willing to say no, that were willing to say enough, 
that were willing um, to take steps to help those that were being oppressed, that were being marginalized. And Lord, we don't want to get into political fights. We don't want to join the Republicans or the Democrats, but we want to follow you. And we want to reach people with your gospel. And we ask that you help us to do that. But we also want to say no. We want to say enough in our own ways. I just ask God that you would take what was said here today and that you would spread it abroad so that people would see that there are persons that are saying enough, persons within Adventism that are saying enough, and that they would join, they would join the effort to say enough, that you would bless Peter and his, and his ministry, bless his podcast and the work that he's doing, and that you would touch the hearts and minds of each listener so that we can have a true movement that seeks to protect the liberty of all people. We pray this in Jesus' name.